All righty. Well, hello, everyone. Andrew Hunziker, CPA, founder of Dope CFO. We have a really um, hot podcast today. Um, I know this is going to be a huge one and a lot of people are asking about it already. <laughs> so we are we are going to dive deep into cannabis taxation. We have Nick Richards. He is definitely one of the top, if not the top, really leader, thought leader in the U.S. on cannabis law um, as a tax attorney. He is co-chair at Greenspoon Martyr in Denver, um, works with, with tax audits, trials, M&A, managing tax debt, and advising cannabis companies. Um, also, where he began his career with the IRS, where he's a leading trial attorney, chief counsel advisor, and special assistant U.S. attorney. So you've got a very deep background. I'm not going to mess up any more of it, Nick. Why don't I bring you on? Give me a, a little more background, and then maybe even... People always like to hear, like, how on earth did you find your way into cannabis? Thanks, Andrew. Really excited to be on uh, Dope CFO. And, you know, in working with various um, uh, accounting professionals across the across the whole United States, I, I see your guys as students again and again and again. And it's always great uh, to be working with such great organizations. So thanks so much for having me okay. on the show. Really, really excited about this. This is something that you know, I have been advocating for for a number of years here, and I really want to kind of wave this bugle, blow that bugle, <laughs> wave this flag, whatever it is, Andrew. But, you know, it's it's something that the cannabis industry really needs to to fight for because, um, you know, cannabis has been denied a lot of things that seem obvious over the years, whether that's taxes or other kind of things. This is one thing that really should work for them, and they really have to stand up and say, no, we, we're going to do this. This is going to work. And it's an exciting time uh, across the U.S. Um, with what's going on in the space right now. Uh, well, my background, yeah, Andrew, I was kind of, let me just say, I was kind of lu uh, lucky in a big way. I was a, I was a pretty uh, nerdy tax dude uh, in the IRS, hanging around with a lot of pocket protectors and stuff like yeah. that. And, you know, I, I left the IRS um, after about 11 years as a trial attorney there when I was here in, in Denver, Colorado. And uh, that was in about 2012, right when cannabis was kind of starting to show up uh, in the business sector. And I had my first cannabis audit, uh, IRS audit that was auditing a small little local cannabis company here, uh, probably in 2012, I want to say. And, um, you know, I went to a um, I went to a, a continuing education about cannabis tax and it was taught by this group out of New York. And Andrew, I don't know if you remember, but at that time, that was when IRS had mandatory continuing education uh, for, um, you know, enrolled enrolled agents and things of that sort. Uh, and then and then authorized providers. And this was this authorized provider teaching, uh, you know, IRS authorized 280E um, uh, tax. Right. And so I went to that class and Andrew, these guys were from New York and there was no weed in New York at that time. Right? <laughs> they were in way over their head into Colorado yeah. with 150 CPAs in the room that had real clients and, and real questions, you know, and <laughs> I was in there trying to be a nice guy and answer some of those questions that they couldn't answer. And um, afterwards, they came up to me and they said, Nick, how'd you like to teach for us? So, uh, you know, Andrew, I was right out there in every major city in the U.S. teaching 280E tax before 471C was available. Real important point there. But, um, you know, I'll never forget, you know, at that point, California was full steam ahead. So I'd show up in California and start teaching and people be on the desks cheering and be all excited <laughs> about it and everything else. And then I'd show up in Detroit or something like that. And, you know, all the CPAs would be hiding under the desks. So yeah. <laughs> it was it was a fun time. It was a fun time. Well, it's definitely great to hear that. And I think it is funny where just where you happen to live sometimes accepts your lifestyle. I started in oil and gas. I'm from Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. I was total different industry, but we did an exit of a company I co-founded with my boss um, in 2010 to Chesapeake Energy. And I was like, I'm moving to Oregon. I can go skiing and climbing out there. And I just yeah. moved not knowing anybody, but same deal. A cannabis client fell into my lap and it was just I never like sought out cannabis. It just accidentally happened. So it's kind of great to hear. Um, and even back, I don't know, even 2016, I remember mm -hmm. talking to small CPA firms here and they're like, we're never going right. to go into cannabis. Forget it. Um, that's really changed over the years, even with the AICPA cannabis conference, we see the big firms are all involved. You know, originally they weren't going to touch the, the space either. Um, 
Well, let's let's dive in. I'm actually going to share screen here a minute, um, and I'm going to toss if I can find where I was. Here it is. Counting methods. So I wanted to. This has been thrown around. I know you touched on it, AICPA, and again, this is like 101, basic first grade level. But I want to make sure I'm clear. So when I came out of Pricewaterhouse, I went into oil and gas with a CFO. You know, most companies, all the public companies, most private companies, we all did the books all year long on as close to gap accrual accounting. That was our method of accounting that we would do. And then at the end of the year, we would come in and we'd still keep our books close to gap as we could. We'd bring in the tax firm. They do the tax return and they make all kinds of tax adjustments to convert the gap method books to the tax books. We would never convert our books even after they made tax entries. We'd keep cap, gap books. They'd keep the tax books over at, say, we use Grant Thornton at the time. Um, and so, for example, in oil and gas, you'd get these huge write-offs that wouldn't fall for the books, but they would come in the tax return. And it was really oil and gas industries. I, I often say it's kind of the opposite of cannabis. We'd come in and have really nice um, net income for the books, which we like to brag about to investors and whatnot. But then we come over to the tax return and we have massive losses, which everyone loves too, because we don't pay any tax. Um, and so when I think of accounting method, and I even pulled this up by the IRS, IRS says method of accounting is the rules to determine taxable income or expense. Um, but I know that this method of accounting is going to come through many of these clauses or codes we're going to talk about today. So maybe define that. And sometimes I see, well, you've got to keep both the same. And I was like, I've never seen anyone do that in all my years. You know, we always have a gap set of books and then we make tax adjustments. So maybe give me a little more thought on accounting method as a backdrop. To, then we'll dive into some of these these codes. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew. So we have our system. It, what we're talking about here is our income tax system. And, you know, at the constitutional level, the 16th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution creates this thing called an income tax and authorizes the U.S. government to tax income. And in taxing income, we have this class of expenses called ordinary and necessary business expenses. And they are ordinary. The definition then is a specific definition. They are specifically ordinary and necessary for the production of income. And that's the first big class of expenses that have to be recognized in determining income. But those expenses then aren't necessarily all in a single year or the income isn't all in a single year. Actually, think about you can go out and buy a machine and that expense is really useful over a period of years. And so we have different sorts of accounting methods that will then allocate that those costs according to those different types of deductions then. We have a certain class of expenses that can be deducted in the current year immediately, the same year in which they're expensed. We have these other class of expenses that have to be added to cost of goods sold and can only then be, quote, deducted. It's not the right exact right term, but we'll yeah. use it. And can't be deducted until the goods are sold. And then we have other types of expenses that have to be capitalized and can't be recovered until exit. That's accounting method level stuff. All of those expenses are ordinary and necessary business expenses. They have to be accounted for at some point in the life of the business. The question is when. And under under Andrew, we're going to start talking about 471C. Before I do that, though, 471 then is this code section that is that sets forth the accounting methods for companies that sell and produce goods. And so for companies that sell and produce goods, we have this special set of rules under 471 that state which good, which types of expenses have to be included and as cost of goods sold. And the rest of them are then allowed to be deducted currently. Okay. And so, and so a great example you brought up for me is like, okay, because Congress changes laws all the time, especially around things like depreciation, like, oh, okay, they need, we need to incentivize you. So you bought that tractor for a hundred grand. Um, and so for good accrual accounting, we're going to put it on the balance sheet and depreciate it over 10 years or whatever the life of it. But they decide you can expense all of it this year, 179 or whatever it is. So that would be the tax method versus the, um, the gap accounting method. Um, so, 
Furthermore, is it and, that's, and Andrew, that's a little bit of the 16th Amendment at work there, right? That early, that early allowance of the full cost, right? That that is not required under the 16th Amendment because it isn't it, it because that cost extends over the gain of multiple periods. So the 16th Amendment would say, no, you have to you have to tie that cost specifically to the gain produced over those different periods. But a concept called legislative grace would allow the U.S. Congress to come in and say, no, no, we want to give you early credit for those costs. We're going to let you take it all now, right? And then oftentimes what happens is states go, we don't want to do that. We're going to decouple from that. You got to, And that ends up making differences between not only your federal and your gap, but your federal and your gap in your state too. Okay, so, okay, there, there's a lot I want to hit there. So why don't we hit, so... So you hit a little bit, maybe another concept is, so I know in the basic 471 rule, because we're going to get into 471C later, A, it says it's got to clearly reflect income. That's important. What's the, maybe hit another highlight, high point, difference between income and gain over the life of a business? Yeah. So this concept of income then becomes part of our tax system. And it's a, it's a reference to the 16th Amendment's authorization to tax income. They're really the same income and gain. G- income has been defined as gain. Uh, and there's a, Andrew, there's a bunch of old cases out there from when the, our tax system was first created that talk about that it, that income is really, it's not, it's, it's an everyday understanding. It's a, it's a, we know it when we see it kind of a term and it's really the gain of the taxpayer. Um, so that's that constitutional level requirement. And what 471 actually says, 471A, that is, is that the IRS has the right to determine cost of goods sold so to clearly reflect income. And so it gives them the right to say, we think it should be this. And then in doing that, they are clearly reflecting income. The statute gives them that authority, right? That they have the, they have different, that, 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 level of authority comes up in other areas of the code as well. For example, if we've established an accounting method that doesn't clearly reflect income under another code section, the IRS has a right to change to change your accounting method. And that right is specifically conditioned upon clearly reflecting income. Um, and so that 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 kind of authority is, is a very big grant of authority, right? That's really important. And under 471A, then the IRS utilized the authority to set forth costs of goods sold to then promulgate the what we call the 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 um the uh, inventory accounting rules, right? 263 Cap A, 471-11-3, all those regulations that are known as the um the inventory accounting rules. Now, let me, while we're talking about 471, another kind of high level, and this is in the the 471.1, talking about, um, because I know we had this issue with 463A, oh, that's not allowed um, in cannabis, because this sentence around an inventory cost does not include a cost for which deduction would be disallowed or is otherwise not recoverable. Is, Is that an issue where where we've got two ADs that says you can't deduct or credit anything. And oh, by the way, if there's some new law that says you can't deduct something, still doesn't work. <laughs> does that, how does that relate? Well, yeah, so those are those are the limitations of those particular accounting methods set forth in the code. Um, but backing up back to this constitutional level principle, those expenses, once 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 280E affects them and they can't be deducted, if they can't be put into cost of goods sold, they don't disappear. They're still there. They're just suspended in a way, and they can't be utilized against current income. Uh, and and that's what's going on with 280E. In 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 that's this is my position. It hasn't been established in the courts yet, but that's what's going on is that these expenses are being suspended. But under the 16th Amendment. They are ordinary and necessary business expenses that must be accounted for at some time in computing the income from that business, the gain from that business. And essentially, if you can't take those costs during the life of the business because of your accounting method or the requirements of the code, then you you can you should be able to take those costs on exit as basis um, because they're suspended. And once you have a exit event, now you get to claim them against your your revenue on exit. 
Now, by the way, we will throw in this TNT article that you wrote around the 16th Amendment and I believe um, 446 as well. So maybe maybe this is a good time to highlight that where you can. So if we do capitalize, say, and let's just take a simple expense like rent, it's mm-hmm. not under 280 at the dispensary, say, can we capitalize it not in the gap books, but on the tax books? So when the exit is that can that will affect their gain. Yeah, that's exactly what I think you should be doing out there is capitalizing those expenses on your balance sheet. Um, They don't have a tax effect right away. They just sit there. You need some other thing to to unlock them as long as 280E applies. But, you know, Andrew, the the really exciting thing is that we that that other thing could be re or descheduling in the next couple of years, which a lot of people in the industry are talking about. So it's really important to get this straight now. And if we get to a point where you can then utilize that asset, that could be a giant windfall for the for the industry, right? But back to my original question around gap accounting. So if I just have my set of books at my dispensary and I'm trying to have them so we're putting back on my gap accounting head, I want for many reasons, um, one of which may be, I just may be required to have gap books for my state or my lender or my investor or whatever. If you're, got, if you're a public company. But even if I'm a private company, we can be if required by, by the lender or whoever to have sure, a gap audit. Sure. Um, yeah. Also, just having good gap books is hopefully theoretically better to run the business. It's better to raise capital, et cetera. So there are reasons for that. But if I do that, am I losing this or can I still yeah. capitalize those costs just on the tax level? Okay. So the two, these two different methods, one under 471A, one under 471C. Okay. You said, will I lose this? You cannot have gap financials if you're under the 471C method. That is a critical piece, right? Um, but Andrew, interested, one of the things that I've been saying to a lot of CPAs out there, and maybe they don't like me saying this, um, is gap is nothing. Gap is not the law, right? Gap yeah. is a is accounting method. It's not the law. 471 A and C are the law. And if there is a conflict between gap and 471 C, guess which one wins? 471 C, right? Um and and that that is what is demonstrated in those inconsistent those different books, right? You you have one position for gap, but there's the law allows something else in the tax world, and so you have a different position for taxes, right? Um, that's really really important to understand when you're looking at the 471c method to understand that it it really is the law. It's not even it's not a regulation, right? It's not it's not a, a method like gap. Uh, it is the law. It is the voice of Congress, right? It is. It is the. It is an act of legislative grace, is what it is, right? And that is really, really important. It's next in line to the U.S. Constitution. I guess I'm still a little bit lost on where. And going back to my oil and gas company, we did depreciation for the books on a gap ba- basis because our lender required it. But then over on the tax return we did accelerated depreciation. So we had right. gap books and tax books and that was okay, but you're saying it's not okay for, for cannabis that we can't- Not for, four, for 471C. 471C is not available for companies with what are known as applicable financial statements. And Andrew, what you're talking about are applicable financial statements. It's a little more narrow than that. It, it specifically pl- applies to a certified gap financial used for a significant purpose. And, and okay. that could well, that could lender the lender you mentioned that that is a significant purpose. Um, obviously, if you have SEC filing requirements or something like that, that makes it so you can't use 471C. But even so simple, uh, I think, as you have an investor and your investor says, Nick, these 471C financials, I don't get them. Uh, can you give me a gap financial? Hey, guys, the answer is no, you can't. <laughs> so that. And, and I wanted to get into this. So there are trade-offs. There are people like, oh, that's an issue. Um, I don't want to, you know, I want to be able to run my business. Be- and, and that's another question around, okay, how do we actually create a set of 471 1C books? So let me ask you real quick back on this mm-hmm. TNT article where you're saying, okay, if we're going to capitalize, say, rent or whatever on the balance sheet, is that 471C we're talking about? No, no, that's the capital asset theory. Although it it does sort of 
explain 471C in a lot of ways. It explains why 471C works, I, I believe. So can, can you use the capital asset theory and 471C at the same time? Yes, you can. Yeah. So you would... So if, if, so, and I'm just, again, I'm trying to get this at the simplest level. So I'm the bookkeeper or the accountant and I'm like, we're going to do 471C in the capital asset theory. I pay rent. I'm not going to hit rent expense and QBO. I'm going to hit some kind of capital asset for rent. And right. every time I spend any money, utilities, whatever, marketing, I'm going to put it on capital asset. Um, those are going to make for really unusual financials. <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. run your business are you going to have you're right. going to have cash and fixed assets and no expenses and and revenue so if you do it that way say you have a million in revenues you have no cost because they're on the balance sheet so your net income is a million dollars um other than the 471c costs mm-hmm. or costs to get sold well so andrew let's say this first off 280E financials are weird too, right? They yeah, don't make oh, sense yeah. either, right? We're already in that world. This is nothing yeah. new. As a matter of fact, it might be less weird, right? The, weird, I, weird. I think I think conceptually, this idea that expenses that are subject to 280E disappear, I think conceptually that is far weirder than the concept that I'm talking about. If you think about it, Andrew, and, and even under GAP, think about it this way. If you have an ordinary and necessary business expense, that you cannot deduct or include in cost of goods sold. Does GAP tell you to erase that expense? I don't think it does. I think it would say to capitalize that expense. Now, there's all kinds of categories that get in the way and naming conventions and all this other stuff, right? But this concept, this general concept that 280E can permanently disallow an ordinary necessary business expense is something that we as accounting professionals, we have to purge that thought from our head. Because it it, ju- it just doesn't make any more sense than the idea that 471C can be used to put additional costs into cost of goods sold. So I, I think that's an important first point. Um, and then and then I think it's also important to 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 say that you know the what the what is what 471 does is it says this these are these accounting methods. And what 471A says is that the IRS has the right to say what those accounting methods are. And that's the way all of our 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 cases have gone um, from Champ, the very first you know, 280E case, right, all the way through the most recent ones. Those are all under 471A. Every one of those cases goes like this: Oh, you're subject to 280E, but it doesn't affect cost of goods sold. Let's took let's look at 471 to see what it what you get for cost of goods sold, right? That's how all these cases go. And we don't have a case that goes, oh, let's look at 471C yet. That just hasn't happened. So. Andrew, one thing I think is really, really important for people to understand out there is that 471C is available to all small business taxpayers. There's nothing nefarious about being a 471C taxpayer. A lot of the accounting profession got scared of 471C, and I hear things from people all the time, oh, I would never use 471C. That is just a lack of understanding. A lot of people got scared of it because they heard, oh, you can put everything cost of goods sold under 471c. That's what it does. No, that's not necessarily what it does. And the thing that we need to understand is that any, any, any taxpayer subject to 280E is better off under 471c than without it, period, end of story. Because you get out from underneath all of that bad law that we have over the years. That All that law is under 471a. Oh. And the, the beauty of it is that you get out of that law and you also get out of this other thing. The IRS having the authority to set forth the cost of goods yeah. sold, right? So it's really important. To you, since you said it, it hadn't there hadn't been a court case yet. Say I do four seventy one C, I own the dispensary or whatever. Is do I have some risk that they're going to come in and litigate, and I'm going to be in three years of litigation with the IRS, and they're going to say you're wrong, or is it safer to wait for the court cases, or do you feel secure? What are the risks me as a business owner if I just go all in 471C and then a case comes out and says, no, we don't allow that or whatever. I, I mean, there's always risk, right? Um, to get audited when you're, when you're, you know, utilizing things that are in the gray area. And this is, um, and, you know, but in the cannabis industry, Andrew, I like to, if, if somebody comes in and tells, tries to tell me that they, they really just don't want to get audited. I tell them they're in the wrong industry because <laughs> the cannabis industry gets audited. Right. Um, and, and Andrew, every, every one of the, 
471c taxpayers that I've ever assisted in this. Um, and it's always a CPA and myself. I don't file tax returns. I, I'm the lawyer. I help CPAs understand how to do this in a safe way. And the way we do it is we disclose it. We tell the IRS exactly what we're doing. And we disclose it on a special form that is in place specifically to allow taxpayers to challenge the IRS in a responsible way. And in exchange, they can't be penalized. So it's, it's a process, Andrew, that's out there. It's part of our system to allow taxpayers to challenge the IRS and to do it responsibly. And that's what we're doing. And, and that brings up another point I wanted to hit. some point, I'm going to get to our questions. But the, <laughs> the um, So the form you mentioned, 8275, and I think you, either you or Bill, the AICPA called it, called it your best friend if you are audited. And so that was a key point that, that everyone yeah. loved. Um, if you file that as well, I think another, and this even goes back to, to first grade again, that I've heard you say and others, um, first off, we deal through Dope CFO and all the students with just hundreds, if not thousands of cannabis companies across the U.S. And what we find, and even at the AICPA conference, over and over and over again throughout the conference, we hear the books are a disaster. There are no records. Nothing ties out. Nothing's clean. So before you do any method for gap or tax or whatever, um, we pitch that you better have rock solid accounting foundation because when the when the IRS shows up and it's just a big mess and like you said, it's not responsible and you haven't done anything right um, or even you don't even have source documents or you're not counting inventories, just basic first grade accounting, when I call it, um, you're going to be in a bad way already. And so, I mean, I talked to all these business owners out there about, oh, 471 or 280E. It's like, wait a minute, are your books and records actually in order? That's step one, in my opinion, <laughs> to get that. So order. important. So important, Andrew. So important. I don't know. I tell everyone that same thing. Um, and and in, in it's even more important in 471C because it is, I call it the books and records method. The only requirement is that the tax return matches the books and records. That's the one statement in the law. And so your books and records better be good. And the one thing that the IRS keeps saying again and again, they're being weird about this. They don't, they don't really want to talk about 471C. But the one thing that they do say is that they think that the industry has a record problem. It has a books and records problem. And Andrew, I'm a former IRS trial attorney. I still know a bunch of people over there. Some of them I know that in that are in the, the 280E attorney cadre. And I call them up and I ask them questions. And I called up when 471C came out and I asked the question, what is, what do you guys think? And what, what I was told was that um, the gentleman said, Nick, when it first came out, I thought it eviscerated section 280E. But you know, I think the industry has a books and records problem. And really, Andrew, we're demonstrating this right now. And you're, you, you keep wanting to go to Gap, right? And yeah. a lot that happens. There's this, there's this sort of gravity that pulls businesses towards this Gap. And it could be very easy that you end up in a situation where you can't have the right books and records because this Gap is steering you in some way. And Andrew, one, one quick point on that. I just took over on a case that was handled by a, 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 somebody else in the audit. And they mistakenly sent in GAP financials on a 471C audit to the IRS, oh, right? Wow. <laughs> and it was a mistake. They weren't, they actually, these were just internal financials that they had, you know, and they sent them in in the audit. Now I've petitioned that casing tax court. And, you know, Andrew, now I have to prove that those aren't the books and records of the taxpayer, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> and is, even what you're saying you even had books and records to send. Some of these clients don't even really have books and records. Yeah. We get in there and we're trying to find, they're like, you know, they're they're doing things verbally and borrow. Oh, I I borrowed that tractor from my brother, and we didn't sign the operating agreement. We don't we don't have invoices for these things, and so we at Dope CFO, we first and foremost, we want to make sure they've actually got supporting documents for their expenses and their income, and it actually ties out so that we can we can see that it's there. Um, I wanted real quickly. On this, and by the way, I think you may even represent one of our a member in Dope CFO that was telling me she was going through an IRS audit, and they commented to her like, "Wow, they were really impressed that documents were in order." <laughs> um, it really gets you a long way with the IRS when you can give them good, clean documents that match. I, Andrew, I'm not a CPA or an accountant. What, the way I like to say it is, you know what? 
I want to put your P&L down on one side and your and your tax return on the other side. And I want to see the same numbers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just just that simple, right? Yeah. And, have match. A, <laughs> and not see just a bunch of games. Like if, say, we're not going to go down the entity issue that's another call where but if you get in there and there's one one little dispensary on the corner and you see 35 entities um in this yeah. grid um you're like what's going on here <laughs> looks like <Yeah>. tax evasion <laughs> but um yeah. real quick just we've been hitting this so i just thought i'd throw it in here the general rule 471a about clearly reflecting income one question i wanted to ask about this exemption for small business i believe it's revenues under 25 million what happens we have a lot of clients that start out at 10 million in revenues, but by year three, they're 30 million. Can they still do 471C for a couple of years and then they graduate out of it? Yeah. So this, so this is 471C that you highlighted here. Uh, and, and you're right, Andrew. So it's, it's, it's a, this year it's 27 million. It's adjusted okay. for inflation when it, in 18, the first year it was 25 and it's a three-year look back. So you get, so you say you, you utilize the 471c method and then you get to 27 million, but you average it over the past three years. So most likely in that first year, you're not going to be over it. You're going to have a little bit of a runway to get there. Once you get there, you revert back to 471a. So you just get back to where you were. Before. Okay. So you, you go back before. And then if you do this, and so Cam also at the AICPA, he's serving clients in Montana. And so what he's getting pushed back against. So there's many shady characters, not just in the accounting world, even people that aren't accountants going yeah. and approaching the dispensary and saying, saying your accountant cam is really screwing you over. We can do 471C and we can throw every single cost into cost of goods sold. But when I read this, it says that this is okay. This meets that, that gross receipts test. Um, as long as you're doing one of these two, um, now, this is the one thing I wanted to have a deeper dive into because there's a debate of like, oh, how do I actually do this? Treat inventory as supplies and materials. Do this doesn't a, a blank check for us to throw everything under the sun and to cost of goods sold, is it? I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, advise for that. But I don't okay, I, I don't think we can say absolutely legally that that's the case it doesn't it doesn't get that specific right um personally i don't think that's a, a good way to do it um but i i just don't i can't i can't say legally that that doesn't work yet um and uh, and i pulled this up under 471-1 um you might explain the lettering and the number i don't quite get but there but it does talk about incidental supplies and 471c and it's saying you need to use either last LIFO or specific identification. And um, it also says you can use direct cost produce or the prior property acquired for resale. It does not include the cost for which a deduction would be allowed. Again, that made my ears perk up a little bit, but um, but if we if we do do it and the court comes in and they think, and like you said, we did the AD 275 correctly, we're still going to have a reasonable position and um, we're not going to have to go litigate for 10 years like Harborside did or whatever, because I always tell clients too, you know, I, I want them to be aggressive and, and lower taxes as much as possible. But on the other hand, I don't want them in court for three years because in litigation, oftentimes there's no winners. Um, sure. It's so expensive. Uh, let me say this, Andrew. I have successfully settled 280E cases for hundreds of cannabis companies without going to court. Okay, hundreds. so that's hundreds, Andrew. <laughs> so that's um, and by the way, Nick, this is gonna be a plug for Nick. Come come get him under your wings. And so I think it's very important to be able to, yeah, not go down that road and be able to settle and figure out um and and even the penalties and interest side of things. Um, one of the great one of the great things about the IRS, and I, I know this as a former IRS trial attorney, is that they're not required to win. That's not their mission. Their mission is to correctly administer the tax code. And so, you you know, if you're if you're dealing with a Department of Justice attorney, they get judged on whether they win or lose. But IRS attorneys don't get judged on that. An IRS attorney can concede cases their entire career and go right to the top if that was the right thing to do. 
Um, so you end up in this different kind of a dynamic where things become more possible. It's not as adversarial. It can be very inexpensive, actually, to go to tax court and settle a tax case in tax court. Um, so it's, it, it, it is, uh, you're right. I think that um, I've had some 471c cases get audited. Um, and so far, what I'm seeing is that the IRS is looking closely at whether the books and records match the tax return. Um, and that's not to say that that's the only, their only concern or that they agree that 471c works. But Andrew, I've had a couple cases that received no changes that were 471c cases where they put quite a bit into cost of goods sold. Um, they had great books and records. I was able to show that the books and records matched the tax return exactly. And the IRS didn't challenge us. Um, okay, that's so not that's to say that they couldn't have challenged us. They couldn't win and prove 471c doesn't mean anything. But I think that the, what it what it shows is that it's not that simple. Uh, and there is perhaps something there. And the IRS is being very careful. Okay, so that that's good to hear. And then if you're a, the tax preparer, if you're, I think there's a line, you probably know better than me that, yeah, if you know your client's doing something illegal, mm -hmm. you probably shouldn't do the tax return. But if you think it's reasonable and you've mm -hmm. documented your form, you're probably good to go, even if you think they're being super aggressive. And Andrew, that's absolutely right. And the, and the form 8275 not only protects the taxpayer from penalties, but it protects the preparer from penalties as well. And the way in which I work with preparers and cannabis companies is it's myself, the preparer and the business owner on a phone call. And we go through the P&L line by line and we talk about which expenses we're going to put into cost of goods sold under the 471c method and which we're going to capitalize and not put into cost of goods sold. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a process. Some taxpayers say, Nick, let's get more aggressive. Some taxpayers say, Nick, that's not aggressive enough. And and sometimes the accountant says, Nick, I, I can't get there. I, that's just one step too far for me. Uh, and we find that balance that everyone feels comfortable around taking the right level of risk. And then I write that disclosure and I specifically disclose exactly what we're doing to the IRS. And that's that's what the IRS wants us to do. They want us if we think that we think that this is reasonable and it works, they want us to apply it and tell them we're doing it. And then if they want to give us a call, they can give us a call. If they don't, they don't. Uh, you know, and that's the way we go. That's the way our system works. OK, so they and, and let me ask you, I just had another thought. Is this is the best case for this generally dispensary like 47111? We can get so many costs at the farm already into cost of goods sold. Or, or is this you're using this for all kind of verticals? Yeah, you're right. I think this is this is mostly. So first off, let me back up. This works for all companies. Honestly, it's better. You're better off under. If you, Andrew, I have seen so many 280 tax returns, right? From <laughs> every all kinds of CPAs out there, right? Yeah. And everyone is pushing a little bit um, beyond what's really technically allowed under 471A. And if nothing else, if nothing else, if all you did was elect 471C, you would be better off than you were before. Because you because I guarantee out there, CPAs, that the what the things that you're doing on your tax returns are better defended under 471C than without. Uh that's just that's just the honest truth. Um because and 471C was enacted by law, right? By Congress to mm -hmm. say this is good for for income if you use this method and as you've already said do it correctly make sure you're, you're not um blowing it on the other side as well and you could look you could you could utilize the 471a method under 471c if you wanted to there's no there's no specific method that is described in 471c it just says reported according to your books and records and it shall not fail to clearly reflect income so you could do anything it's it's not there's no there's no guideposts well, on it, right? That's why it's so remarkable. That's well, why that when it first came out, the CPA community said, what? <laughs> right? Well, and it, it, is, it is confusing to us because, so is there actually a box on the return that you say this is a 471C return? Uh, there is a there is a code um, for the automatic change on the 3115 if you're making the change of accounting method. Um, I think it's two two. 51 to 63. So I can't remember. Well, that um, was a, a question too. Is this a change? If you're not a new company, say you're in year three, this is a change of accounting method. 
And you're changing backwards as well as forward or just going forward? Going forward, you're changing. You can't go backwards. You have to do it on a timely filed tax return and it applies for that year. So if you haven't filed your 2022 tax return and it's on extension, you can elect the 471C method on your timely filed 2022 return on extension. Okay, there is um, just so much there. And we've we've hit 8275. Um, this has been super helpful to me because it is it is confusing when you read these codes and it's like, oh, you can do this, and then you go there. Um yeah. so that's a ton of helpful information. What about other are there any other court cases? I know you've talked about um putting other costs in the balance sheet, startup costs, or any other things we need to be aware of that are are bouncing around the courts right now? Yeah, there's an interesting case called CBS Corp that kind of goes to support this. I, I'm calling it the, the 280E capital asset. Uh, and it's, it is this it is this first step, right? First, we have this 280E capital asset theory, and then we have 471C. What 471C perhaps will allow us to do is to take that capital asset and then utilize it into cost of goods sold, right? Um, because now we have a method that isn't locked into the 471A requirements and has this broader ability. And we might perhaps now be able to capitalize and now amortize into cost of goods sold under 471C. Um, but um, Andrew, I forgot your question. <laughs> well, the... Um trying to think. you forgot it too oh, okay good the, the capital <laughs> asset and the well and the 471c making sure that that you're doing that method and i was just starting to think again about about it doesn't describe exactly what that method is and so mm -hmm. as long as it's it's reasonable and you've got good books and records you'd be able to do that as well um we were talking about other oh the cbs corp case as well yes yeah. So CBS Corp is a, is a case involving the question of basis and disallowed deductions. And, and in CBS, uh, CBS was a U.S. company that went out and bought an airplane and then leased it to a foreign airliner. Um, and at the time, there was a 30 percent exclusion of income from foreign sources. So we were trying to encourage foreign trade and we gave a 30% exclusion of, of taxable income from foreign sources. And there was a corresponding 30% disallowance of deductions. Deductions were disallowed, much like 280E does, right? And um, and CBS then over the life of this business, it, it, had, it depreciated the airplane, but it only depreciated the 70% portion that was allowable. So for every dollar of depreciation that it would have got, it only depreciated 70 cents. Uh, and then on when it then sold, it then sold the airplane, it was a single purpose business. So then the business folds, files a final return. And on that final return, first they report all of the allowable uh, depreciation as reducing their basis in the airline, in the aircraft on exit. And then they realize, oops, we shouldn't have reduced it by the 30% deductions that we didn't take. So then they filed an amended return. They backed out. They, they put the 30% back on basis and they, they asked for a refund. The IRS said, no, we don't think so. We have the right to disallow deductions. Um, and they went to court and um, and they won. Um, and the court, the court, the IRS made a very a, a, a common argument that we see a lot in in um in opposition to this capital asset theory. And that kind of goes like this. Hey, the IRS has other expenses it can disallow. For example, meals and entertainment, 50% yeah. of meals and entertainment. How if, how, how if they can dis permanently disallow 50% of meals and entertainment, why can't they permanently disallow deductions for cannabis companies? The critical difference there is that that 50% of meals and entertainment is a personal expense. In fact, probably the other 50% of meals and entertainment yeah. is also a personal expense, right? But yeah. we're going to let you deduct 50% and we're going to permanently take away the other 50%. That is not an ordinary and necessary business expense, right? It is not. It is not the purchase of something for sale. It's going out <laughs> to lunch, right? Um, so it's not an ordinary, your business is not in the business yeah. of going to lunch, right? Um, but we're going to give it to you anyway. And so in, in the airplane cases, in the airplane case in CBS, they brought the same argument. And there's a number of airplane cases out there that involve both personal use and business use. And in those cases, they were able to permanently disallow the personal use portion 
of the deductions. And the court stated, hey, look, those are different. Those are personal expenses. These are ordinary necessary business expenses. You get to get credit for those on basis. If we didn't give you credit, it would artificially inflate your income beyond your gain in violation of the Constitution. That is exactly what is going on in 280E. We are disallowing expenses that are ordinary and necessary. And under the CBS case, we should get to claim them on exit. Now, let me ask you related to that, if say we come along and 280E goes away some way or another, rescheduling or declassification, can anyone, even if I didn't do 471C, can we go backwards to adjust for, for the 280E years that we paid and get refunds or is that out forever? Andrew, I think you can. I think you can. I, it's We're playing in areas here that there's no rules on, right? No, there's no, there's no, there's no code provision out there that tells you what to do with the 280E asset, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but, but I, but, but here's this experience that I'll draw upon. I, I represented a lot of, a lot of non 280, non cannabis taxpayers, um, where in cases where basis was important, uh, and we had to go back and establish their basis in some business for some, you know, reason that they took a loss and they need basis to take a loss or something like that, right? And it really has nothing to do with what you put on the tax return or what you put on the balance sheet or what you said in prior years. It, it has nothing to do with that. It only has to do with what you can prove when it becomes relevant, right? So capitalizing that asset in, in during the year has no tax effect. And there's, so there's nothing that is, is really triggered there. Later on, when it does have a tax effect, at that point, you can now go back and prove your basis. And whether you reported it at the time or not has nothing to do with what you what you get. If you can prove more, you get more. If you can't prove what you claimed, you don't get what you claim. Uh, and so I think based upon that experience, I think the answer is yes. We can go back and we can grab all of our prior 280 expenses and we can capitalize those expenses on our balance sheet. That's the capital asset method. And then every year that we have additional 280 expenses, we add them to that capital asset. And then the next question is, under your accounting method, is there now a, 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 a way uh, in which you can now utilize that asset? The answer could be no. Answer could be no. But under 471C, the answer could, could be yes. Could be yes. So, so in case we haven't thoroughly confused everybody, this has been highly enlightening. Um, it is complex, but like you say, 471C might might really provide benefit. And then just on the 280E side, you know, is there a chance at some point they're going to come in and say the, the entire code is unconstitutional? Right. Uh, <laughs> I've heard that argument before, um, but um, I'm sure sure that won't be for quite a while. Let me there see. is some, you know, there, Andrew, there's been some movement around um, the, 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 the requirements for an agency to put out regulations. Right. And and for a long time, there was the courts pretty much gave an agency. They just looked the other way and just said, go ahead, put it out. Uh, and that's a case called Chevron and a number of cases out there that the court doesn't seem to be following it. Uh, and so there is a thought that a lot of the a lot of the regulations that we have out there may be unconstitutional under this new way that that the court is looking at reg the regulatory powers. Well, let me. Why don't we wrap up here? This has been really enlightening. Um, I'm going to go go spin my brain around this some more as well. Um, we will definitely be putting this out to our group as well as as just on all the channels. But do you have any final thoughts just around accounting in general or tax or any other advice for the taxpayers and or the accountants out there um, dealing with their cannabis companies? Yeah, I think anyone anyone looking at doing this, you need you need a qualified, you know, accountant, a dope CFO accountant, somebody who knows what they're doing, somebody who has some experience, and then you need somebody like me who understands the legal the legal, you know, boundaries of this and how to and how to do it in a way that is responsible and that can be defended. Um there's this old saying about pigs and hogs and all that kind of stuff and you know, here, 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 we, 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 people know more about that than me. I'm a California kid originally. We didn't have, <laughs> um, but you know, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered, slaughtered, right? And, and that's that 
Andrew, I think that's that all in, right? We don't want to be get the be the hog and get slaughtered. I don't like the all in method. I like a method that gets a reasonable amount of costs into to, into cost of goods sold under 471C and then capitalizes those costs that are sort of real direct sales costs, right? Yeah. I believe that's a reasonable method. We're not being greedy. We're still honoring 280E on on a certain class of expenses. But we're but we're saying, hey, look, we're going to honor the Constitution as well and recognize that these expenses don't just disappear and we're going to capitalize what we're left over. So it's 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 a it, it I believe it works. Like I said, no cases yet on it. Um, but I think there's a good chance that we're that we're really onto something here. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. This was awesome to dive in super deep <laughs> and look at exactly where we are. We're going to put all this stuff in the show notes as well as if you're CEO or accountant out there, you will be able to contact Nick. Um, we'll put all your contact info. Do you want to tell them, is there an easy way to find you as well on the website? Yeah, it's just my name, Nick.Richards at Greenspoon at GM Law, and that's greenspoonmartyr.com. You know, Andrew, I, I'll give a little little shout out for my firm. We've been a, a big, we're a big Amlaw 200 firm. And we were the first large firm to be openly in the cannabis space. Uh, we have been in the cannabis space since I believe 2016. Uh, I'm chair of the cannabis group at Greenspoon Martyr, along with my co-chair, uh, Irina Dashevsky. Really, really skilled bench. Really excited to be with such a great firm. Well, that's awesome. And and I definitely have people in our program that have worked with you and, and say yeah. nothing but the best. So um, it's super fun. Every time we get to see each other at events or meet on our podcast, I really appreciate you coming on. And um, I know this is going to be a, a big release um, in, in the marketplace. So thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Andrew.